So, page 57, Isaiah, um, Genesis 50, verse 22. It's the prequel to Exodus 1. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machiah, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after that they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all the generations died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour... The Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pirah, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stall, if you see the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is the word of the Lord.
evening, one and all. Um, I asked permission just to show some pictures of our travels. Um, we have been away five weeks, so we need to explain what we've been up to. Um, and it was a bit of a come aside and rest. So we flew to Hong Kong, uh, where we're eight hours ahead. And uh, that was the view the night we sailed. Got our personal yacht called Queen Victoria of the Cunard Line. And the first stop was Vietnam, um, particularly elegant, in, in a monastery. You can see a monk behind the lady. And uh, part of the old original capital of the nation. Hard to picture what was going off with the Americans and the war in that part of the world. After Vietnam, Singapore. And yes, it is a real photo. It was a photo shoot with a local model that we gate crashed. And that's the famous boat hotel. And then on to Malaysia and the uh, we opted for the Marmeri people, one of the unreached people groups of the world. And then on to Sri Lanka, Colombo. So a matter of a week before what kicked off, we were outside the Shangri-La Hotel and the Kingsbury being shown around. This is the largest mosque. Um, <coughs> seats about 11,000. Just uh, quite a birthday cake. And that's a view of uh, Colombo, just up the road from where one of the bombs went off. And then tacking across the Indian Ocean to Seychelles. And this is the acacia tree, which the tabernacle in the wilderness was used. Uh, this is the wood that was used to build the tabernacle in the wilderness. And uh, there it is. Um, pity about the views, the beautiful, stunning place. And it's about now, uh, continuing on to Mauritius, that I began to prepare this message. Um, and um, this is a giant tortoise, if you just get the feel of the legs. And uh, the thing has attacked our guide um, to say hello, because it recognizes her. This is about, they go to 120 years old. And then on to Réunion, which is a department of France. So in other words, a colony. And uh, look at these uh, westernized lads. New Orleans, America, eat your heart out. This is Réunion today, colonial architecture. And then on to Zimbabwe, and uh, a welcome in the airport, and to a hotel that Tina and uh, Matthias have stayed at, the Victoria Falls Hotel, where there are visitors uh, during mealtimes. That's not a guest, Mapumba. And there's another visitor while we're having lunch. Julia is a master of sunsets, and this is the Zambezi River, where um, David Livingston uh, used to, uh, this is his stomping ground, and uh, that's the, uh, almost a place of adoration or 
to him locally. I had no idea how big he is locally. Victoria Falls, which uh, we could see the mist from the hotel. It was almost a spiritual experience. Two drowned rats in the mist. And the bridge that is between Zambia, thinking of Matthias again, and Tino and Matthias have used the train to go from the left, which is Zimbabwe, over the bridge to the right, which is Zambia. You see the steam of the falls? That's steam. Uh, the mist? Um, it's huge. And then on to, by um, minibus to Botswana, to the Chobe Park. I'd say, for me and Julia, it was the nearest thing to the Garden of Eden. Um, and so Impala, um, this guy came along within six feet of us in a Jeep. <clears throat> you have to keep all limbs inside so they don't have anything to get hold of. Um, this was on the Namibia side of the river we, we stayed on. Big boy, bad boy. And he was as near as that on the bank. Kudu, learning the names, Matthias, <laughs> um, and a Cape buffalo, whole herds of them, and giraffe. And then welcome to South Africa, which has been a lifelong desire of mine. I, in some ways, couldn't go in my earlier days for obvious reasons, and then for Julia and I to be there where our marriage was illegal. Um, it was not easy until apartheid had, had finished. Um, so here's middle class Port, uh, port uh, Victoria. Here's a township. Cape Town from the top of Table Mountain. Table Mountain from Cape Town. Fantastically preserved colonial Dutch architecture. And then finally to Robin Island. <clears throat> the prison where Nelson Mandela, who's been an inspiration um, in my life. That's the view of tabletop uh, from the island. That's what Mandela and the prisoners would see. That's his cell. 18 years he did there. And he was released from the next prison that he was moved to on the mainland. That's the quarry where they were put to work and where the current, uh, the whole jail was the site of the current, this is pertinent to the message tonight, in adversity, the current constitution of South Africa was smelted in this prison. Because what they did is separate the top political thinkers, black thinkers, who were in, uh, in prison, and they put them all together. Wrong move. And so the current constitution was formed in prison. And when they came out, they were ready. And it's quite remarkable. It actually sends tingles down my spine. That's the guy who showed us round. Um, he's a guide. Um, which one is he again? Oh, sorry, he's the one on... <laughs> He's the one on the right, and he was an inmate, um, and in his, he would be about Teo's age, 
and he led some of the um, protest stuff, anti-apartheid, when he was at school all those years ago and was given six years. So he was there. Um, and he showed us around, lovely guy. <clears throat> Julia is the past master of sunsets, so this is another. Um, she has tons, if you need any. So we're so thankful to God for the opportunity to come aside and rest. And preparation um, is something that God does. He prepares us. Nothing in our lives is wasted. And um, after the comings and goings and uh, humorous and dramatic uh, activity of Joseph and the family in Genesis, we come now to um, the book of Exodus. And so we're going to give treatment to what Mike read for us. So, before we start, just some points to raise about the backdrop of this talk tonight. Um, <clears throat> one of the reasons why faith in Christ brings tranquility to us is that we realize we are part of a bigger picture. The bigger picture, God's purpose in human history. Now, I want to start with that because that is going to come as a theme through everything I say tonight. God's purpose in human history. Is your life plugged in to God's purpose in human history. You say, who am I? I'm just a local person here in Preston. And the amazing thing is that Moses, we are not even given the names of his parents. Have you noticed that? All we're given is that he was a Levite, his tribe. He was an ordinary guy from nowhere among the people and he became a key player in God's purpose in human history and it was uh, uh, oh dear the worship leader Graham Kendrick who did that he wrote that song about being a history maker and that used to be, that was inspiring. Be a history maker. We are playing our part in history. And as we were taken around Robin Island Jail, you realize that every inmate of that jail were individual players, maybe bit players. Not everyone was a Nelson Mandela. But all of them were at pains to say it was a corporate effort across the country by all those who played their part. And what a picture for us as followers of Jesus. We're not all going to be a Billy Graham, but we are all able to be part of God's purpose in history. And the Apostle Paul affirms that. He says in 
in everything, God is at work for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. It's the purpose of the ages. I prefer not to speak of purposes, but his purpose. And he has many minor purposes that feed into this overarching purpose. And um, we're going to get this. I'm going to just go to to show you this. This is an important expression. It's called salvation history. This is the purpose of God in human history. The Bible from cover to cover, from generation to revolution, as somebody called it, Genesis to Revelation, there is a blood-red line, the blood of Christ, going all the way through the Bible, through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Samuel, Kings, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Son of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Do you get the idea? To Malachi. And those who know the song could sing it with me now, but we ain't got time. There is a, bl a blood-red cord of the purpose of God in human history salvation history and I'm amazed at um, the and when Mike read that tonight it's like whoa we've actually left Genesis and gone into another book if you closed your eyes and listened you wouldn't even know it it seamlessly continues and that's because Moses were given to understand wrote all five of the first books of the Bible some academic uh, um, smarty pants like to mess about with that and with Isaiah they said oh no we need a, a Dutro Isaiah and a Tritro Isaiah we need a second and a third Isaiah well if that's the case because of the beautiful beautiful symmetry of the book of Isaiah it's more miraculous that God has caused three men to present such a thing with the gold uh, the, the golden thread the red thread of salvation history running all through it. Seamless. So there's no getting out of it. <laughs> and we've slipped into this other uh, next book, and it's a record. It's the continuation of the record of salvation history. Joseph understood that that's what was going on uh, in his life, that he was part of God's purpose in human history. Now, it's, it's, a lesser, it's not as strong a text for you. Genesis 50, verse 20. God intended everything that's happened to me for good, said Joseph, to accomplish what is now being done, even the saving of many lives. Wouldn't you agree that's one of the minor purposes? The saving of many lives. Why? Because we needed the next guy, Moses, to be born. We needed the baton to be handed on. And it's going to be handed on all the way through the scripture. And so God had a purpose. It may have been a minor one here in Joseph's life. But to accomplish something 
which is going to deliver salvation history. And that chain must not be broken. Salvation history is the story of how God has always been at work throughout history to salvage, that's the word salvation, to salvage the world, to save the world, both people and, as Dave led us this evening, and the planet is on his heart. So have we got something we can be a co-belligerent with these people? And Rowan Williams is with them. Very interesting. Yeah? Co-belligerence is finding in the public good something which is of kingdom importance. There's a new way to draw our lines of social engagement. And this helps folks like Andy and Dave and those who are reaching out in relationship with other faith communities. Because God's cake cuts in different ways to what we may think. And coming out of South Africa, you can take apartheid out of the people, but it's going to take generations to take the people no, it's the other way around. You can take the people out of apartheid, but it's going to take generations to take apartheid out of the people. And they are still naturally, like Pavlov's dogs, preferring separation. And the government are coming in on green belts. So it's like people who live this side of the river are colored, for instance. And then over the, the other side of the river, they're Asian. And then if you go into Preston Moor, it, it's white. And then you go the other way, and it's a black community. Yeah? God cuts the cake in different ways. And thankfully, the government there are starting to build on these literally grass divides to separate communities. The government now are building on them to start to allow the merging of the communities. And this is what we're about, as being salt and light in our society. Spiritual salt. Um, moral salt and spiritual light. God cuts his cake differently to us. His cake is not a segregated cake in any sense. I go to some churches, you mention you know a Catholic. God does not cut his cake in the segregated ways that we do. I go to some other churches and tell them I know a charismatic. Ooh, ooh, ooh. God does not cut his cake in a segregated way. So, Joseph was aware that his life was part of salvation history. And then in uh, verse 22, Joseph stayed... Uh, in Egypt with his brothers, living 110 years and seeing his grandchildren there. Um, then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. Now, <laughs> it's quite jolly, isn't it? Um, this is shorthand for all social and cultural responsibilities are fulfilled. 
he is ready to go. And that's something I notice about those who are conscious of being of their part in God's purpose in human history. Abraham was the same. I'm about to die. <laughs> Jacob was the same. I'm about to die. Moses was the same. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? The cake is cut in different ways. It's not a fear of death. It's the, the, my, my work here is done. Do you have a problem with that? Huh? My work here is done. One of my early mentors, I'll never forget being at a funeral with um, this couple who were my early mentors. Uh, in, they lived in the, for 30, 35 years in the Arab world. And Monica leaned over to me in this funeral and she said, it'll be our turn soon. <laughs> and it was. It came. Her time came. And I was with her just half an hour before she passed away. On her way to glory. And that's a, one of the signs of people who are aware that theirs is a bit part in... Um, uh, a scenario, a drama of the ages. So, Joseph goes on, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land. I'm not sure this one's on, actually. I don't think it is on. It's still on that, so I'll stay with that. God will surely come to your aid, he says to his people, and he'll take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And Joseph made them swear they would carry his bones up to Canaan from Egypt. So he was aware. He'd spoken with his dad. He knew there was a plan. Their family were part of it. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And people say, there you are. The Bible's not true. 110. There are people alive in Nepal today who are that age. Okay, you know, just deal with it. Um, and it's another interesting Bible study is to see how the average age after the fall declined, 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 declined until 70 years and 10, if more by reason of strength. And so this was just a normal sort of an age at this time. Um, in fact, nothing to write home about. So he died. And after they embalmed him in the Egyptian way, he was placed in a coffin, an esophagus in Egypt, similar to Tutankhamun. Uh, you've seen that. You're talking of a similar, um, a similar thing. And then, as if Exodus chapter 1 didn't exist. It continues. The names of the sons of Jacob and families who went down to Egypt. And so, there were 11 brothers and Joseph. It's one more than a football team, isn't it? There they are. Now, if you're interested in Bible numerology... Have you heard of that? Um, so numbers in the Bible are, can be important. And 12 
is a number that's used. Twelve sons of Jacob, and out of them came twelve tribes of Israel. And in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, he appointed twelve apostles of the Lamb, with a capital A. And that is reflected in the book of Revelation 12. And then, oh, by the way, you've noticed, Levi, that was the tribe Moses came from. Verse 5, the sons of Jacob and their families who went down to Egypt were 70 people. Now, back to Bible numerology. Seven, did you know, is a divine number of perfection, completion. So you've heard of the seven-branch candlestick, the menorah. Yes, you, you know about that. Seven, the number of perfection in the scripture. Isaiah 11, 2, speaks about the sevenfold spirit of God. Uh, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Messiah. The spirit of wisdom, one. The spirit of understanding, two. The spirit of counsel, three. The, the spirit of might, four. The spirit of knowledge, five. Um, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And I've lost one. Anyway, look at it in Isaiah 11 and verse 2. And... So 70 is a strengthened seven. And 70 of them went down from Canaan to Egypt. And we notice when you come to the ministry of Jesus, how many times are we to forgive our brother or sister who sin against us? Seven times, said, seventy times, seven. So Jesus just <laughs> takes it way over the top, the perfection. That's Matthew 18, verse 21. What about that time Jesus sent 70 disciples out on a kind of a pilot mission? Remember that? And then... Joseph and that whole generation, the original 70, died. But the Israelites were very fertile and kept multiplying till the land was filled with them. I have to smile at this one. This was a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he would make his disciples plentiful. You remember that? Okay, I don't know if I've got it on here. Here we go. Genesis 15.5, it was repeated again in Genesis 26.4, and it's also kind of said in a slightly different way in Genesis 12, I think. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars. And elsewhere he says, and like the sand of the seashores. And uh, some of us like to think, 
that um, you have the Jewish earthly uh, one and the spiritual Gentile and Jewish church of spiritual sons and daughters, the stars. That's how some people like to um, understand that. Then, a new pharaoh. Here we go. A new pharaoh came to power to whom Joseph meant nothing. So Pharaoh said, the Israelites have become far too numerous. Let's deal shrewdly with them so they don't outnumber us. And if war breaks out, they will um, join our enemies to fight against us. Now, it's interesting that something which was actually in the purpose of God was a problem to the Egyptian government at that time. So the Hebrews went into a clash with God's purpose, and the Hebrews went into an era of persecution from the Egyptian state. They were seen as a threat to national security. But with God, a setback comes before a step forward. Selwyn Hughes always used to refer to it as um, with every setback comes a springboard. But I notice it's a pattern in the scripture where God's purpose in human history human beings come into collision with it and trouble can ensue we call it persecution or oppression and we think um, coming from our health and safety um, culture where everything must be just so and uh, Julia and I smiled at some points on some of the trips we did off the ship with how different nationalities coped with different possibilities of physical difficulty and health and safety and um, I might do something to my ankle or um, there's nothing to show me where to go uh, or there's nothing to tell me what time we're going to be picked up and, you know, panic. And uh, they're nor usually Northern Europeans or North Americans. But anyway, uh, and I would remind them that um, the West have the watch, but Africa have the time. And we tend to see difficulty as a bad thing. And it's understandable because it's uncomfortable. But the Apostle Paul helps us. Um, no, he's not going to help us. So I'll read it to you. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. We've already seen that. Hardship is not necessarily bad in the economy of God. The whole of Moses' life was characterized by...
by adversity and difficulty. Have you noticed? He was born into a resented ethnic minority, similar to how Jesus was in an outpost of the Roman Empire. Number two, Moses survived a death threat even as a baby. Moses in the bulrushes, which is rather reminds me of Jesus' experience and the slaughter of the innocents in the nativity story. Thirdly, Moses had to flee the country as a refugee, which kind of reminds me that's exactly what Jesus had to do. He became a refugee in Egypt. I don't know if you've ever wondered, why did Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt? Why not Lebanon? Hello? <laughs> why not go north and go over to Cyprus? Just a thought. But they went south to Egypt. Moses had a speech impediment. And Moses had an impossible task to do in his life. So I hope that we can um, make friends more with adversity. I've thought about how to say this from a platform, but we know that after the ISIS caliphate collapsed in Iraq, they're now set to operate through global cells to attack soft targets. And we've just been reading about that in Sri Lanka. And I think I've said it from this platform before, but while the beast system of Re the revelation is seeking to pummel to death the church in the southern hemisphere, he's seeking to seduce the church in the northern hemisphere, to seduce the church to death. And we're moving into an era where any of us can go to a pop concert in Manchester or go shopping in London and beyond Westminster Bridge. There is a sense that the church worldwide are set to recognize one worldwide body of Christ united by the difficulties and the realities of the world in which we live. I'll never forget sitting at the feet of um, Richard Wormbrand when I lived in Egypt. And he told the story of one guy who burst into their church in the middle of the service with a machine gun and asked for anyone who... Um, Everyone was going to be killed, he said. And he, um, I can't remember quite what he said, but people had a choice. Either they stay as a follower of Christ and are shot, or they're free to leave. And one or two people got up and left. And when they'd gone, they closed the door. He put the gun down and said, 
right, that's fine. I wanted to make sure I was fellowshipping with real believers. Because I'm a believer. And he was in uniform, he was a soldier. If we as a, a nation move closer to that mentality, we will truly be brothers and sisters of those in the Southern Hemisphere who have lived for decades and decades, some of them, with these difficulties. So, the slave masters oppressed the Hebrews with forced labor, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked them ruthlessly, made their lives bitter. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when you help the Hebrew women to give birth on the delivery stool, if you see the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Then Pharaoh gave the order to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile and let every girl live. If this isn't an echo of the slaughter of the innocents in Matthew 2, I don't know what is. I love the thing that God gives to them at the end. It says the midwives feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. This was a form of ethnic cleansing going on here. And the king of Egypt summoned the midwives, asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women, <laughs> it's the Jewish thing, they're not like Jewish, they're not like Egyptian women. They give birth quickly. I knew an American uh, who, lady, uh, you'll be grateful to know, used to give birth in an hour flat. Never seen anything like it. They could hardly get her to hospital. They gave up. She was so quick. Huh? So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And this is a lovely promise that... Um, somebody that was in, kind of important in, in my early life um, as a believer. In fact, it was a midwife uh, in Nottingham who was responsible for the Lord entering my family. And uh, she delivered three, uh, 2,000 babies locally in her career. She prayed with all the mothers and left the New Testament. Those were the days. And when I became a youth leader... Three quarters of the youth group had been delivered by Doris. She had prayed and they came to Christ. And this was what the Lord gave to Doris, um, a promise I heard her testify one time. Um, because the midwives feared God and gave, he gave them families of their own. One um, translation says he gave them houses to live in, and that was a time that she needed a place to live. God looks after people who serve him. Let's conclude. How are we doing? I've gone on, I'm sorry. We are at the end of the service, though, aren't we? Okay. Are you too bored? Let's conclude. The Bible is the story of salvation history, how God is working in world history to salvage the world. 
The Bible is full of ordinary people like you and me who became players in the story of salvation history. Jacob was aware. Abraham was aware. Isaac was aware. Jacob was aware. Joseph was aware. And uh, Moses is going to become aware that God has plans for his life. Here we go, the bottom line and I'm done. All of us may not have a major role in salvation history, but all of us do have a bit part to play. Let's pray.